I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We have come through the flood, this judgment of God upon creation. Noah and his family have left the ark. They've disembarked. They have offered these uh, sacrifices of worship to God that were a pleasing aroma to him. We have also seen that God has declared that never again will he curse the earth on account of man by sending a flood like this again or worldwide disaster of this sort. But the reason, if you recall, the reason God said he wouldn't do that is not because man is now purified or man is now intrinsically righteous or something like that and the problem is solved. He got rid of the bad ones and now just the good ones remain. No, he says in chapter 8 verse 21 that man still intends evil from his youth. Uh, He's not going to destroy the earth by sending a flood again because it hasn't changed the situation of the human heart. He would have to send a flood every generation if this was his response to the human heart and its intention to do evil. And so God is now, the flood has passed, Noah and his sons and their wives are out. God is now declaring, as he enters into this covenant with Noah, his sons, and all of creation, he is declaring a measure of and promising a measure of his mercy toward mankind in general. It is a mercy that stabilizes creation while God continues to work out his plan of redemption. And we talked about that last time. And so now on the other side of the flood here, after he has indeed God blotted out mankind, the language that we've seen in Genesis, there is now something of a new start, a new beginning or something of a new creation. And in what we read in the following verses that we're going to look at uh, this afternoon, there are clear echoes of the original commission that had been given to Adam and to Eve. However, it is important to notice what is, I I hope, obvious, that they are not starting here from a point of perfect uprightness as Adam and Eve were. Again, God has said that though Noah was definitely, we would say, a godly man, Scripture has told us that, God himself has told us in verse 21 of chapter 8 that the sinful nature of man yet remains and persists. And so as we continue to look at this covenant that God made with Noah, and it's commonly referred to as the Noahic covenant, that's just Noah with I-C on the end, the Noahic covenant, we see that in this, God calls humanity to fulfill a new commission, one that is now fitting with the reality of a fallen world. So there are similarities to what God commissioned Adam to do, but there are important and significant differences. There are certain things that were put before Adam that man simply cannot fulfill now. It's a cursed world. But there is nevertheless a commissioning that goes on here as Noah and his children begin things afresh. And while this covenant that we are looking at was struck so long ago in a world that seems so disconnected from ours, 
And it might seem to be perhaps of little relevance to us. But it may come as a surprise just at how relevant it is for us even now in 2023. This is a covenant that is still in effect. And it is a covenant that we are all under as human beings. We are under it with our neighbors, believers and unbelievers alike. And so let's uh, read. We're going we're to read verses 1 to 7. And uh, hopefully we will cover all seven verses uh, this afternoon. So let's, let's begin Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. As we consider the commission that this covenant calls mankind to, the first thing I want to see is that the Noahic covenant calls mankind to be fruitful multiply, and fill the earth. This is stated very plainly in verse 1. Let's read that again. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Up until this point, when in the, the story as Noah has entered into the picture, when God has spoken, he has spoken directly to Noah. Uh, Noah's sons have obviously been brought into this. They've been blessed along with Noah in being spared from the judgment that is to come, but they have not been directly addressed by God until now. Now this blessing here is given to Noah, it says, and to his sons, and he said to them. So he now addresses Noah and his sons. That is to say he's addressing everybody. There's not a lot of people left, uh, but he addresses Noah and his sons, and he gives them this commission here. Again, everyone then is included in this covenant. And if this isn't clear enough here, if you look ahead to verses we didn't read, but verse 8 and 9, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature. So again, you, your sons, and all of your offspring, which is to say every single person that would ever live henceforth, this covenant is established with them. And the command that's given here in verse 1 is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. These words are identical to what God said to Adam in chapter 1, verse 28. And so we see here this aspect of the original creation mandate remains in effect. Although we remember, of course, that on this side of the fall, it's going to be greatly, uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult 
not the least of which we think of the curse that was pronounced upon childbearing and the pain that would be increased upon bearing children. So being fruitful and multiplying is obviously going to come with a lot more difficulty. Sorry. It's going to be okay. Nevertheless, multiplying and filling the earth remains man's general duty upon this earth. Now, obviously, this should be understood in light of what we have already seen in the book of Genesis about the creation, God's creation of male and female and of marriage itself. This command to be fruitful and multiply is not to be carried out in just any old fashion as if one man with a, a large harem or something like that. No, we, we re, are, remember God created male and female and he has put Adam and Eve together. And we are told for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife in Genesis 2.24. This command is meant to be carried out in the context of marriage, marriage between a man and a woman. And since it's 2023, a biological man and a biological woman, I, we understand this. When Jesus taught on marriage, he appealed to Genesis chapter 2. And even though that comes before the fall, and Jesus is talking to men and women after the fall, clearly, he shows us that Genesis chapter 2 is still meant to be how marriages are. That man is meant to join and hold fast to his wife until death. And Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, they shall become one flesh. And then he goes on to say what God Brings together, let not man separate. And so the, 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 the marriage arrangement, Adam and Eve being given to one another and then to have children, this is meant to continue and this is meant to continue for all mankind and is still in force. This is still what marriage is. So when God tells Noah and his sons to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, he is also upholding what has previously been established, namely marriage and the family. Marriage and the entity of the family is not simply a, a thing that is meant for Christians. Of course, we know, as Christians, we know that the truest meaning of marriage we find is a reflection, is to be a reflection of Christ and the church. We read that in Ephesians chapter 5. But the family and marriage, this is to exist, these are to exist everywhere. This is God's gift to all of mankind, to all of creation. When society attacks the family, it is attacking something that is, therefore, we conclude, very fundamental to human existence and very basic to human flourishing. When marriage, on the other hand, is defended and upheld, it is a blessing and it is a benefit to all, not just to you and I, but to everybody. This is obviously 
relevant to today. We see our society is indeed attacking marriage, and this is not new. This has been going on for quite a while now. It's been attacking the family unit, the family structure. Some organizations explicitly want to overthrow our idea of family. And so we should be among those who would stand up and say no to this. We would defend the family, defend marriage. Now, I do want to give a a caveat as we think about this, as we think about the command to go forth, to be fruitful and to multiply. This doesn't necessarily mean that every individual must marry and have children. We know, for example, that there are some who cannot have children, though they would like to. There are others who would like to be married, but whose desires for that have been frustrated by God's providence for whatever reason. There is also, in Scripture, we are told of a contented singleness that can occur, that Paul discusses, that Paul himself lived an experience that allows, in the case of a believer, freer service to certain ways of serving the Lord. However, those caveats being in place, this is the ordinary way of things. It is overall how things work. Man grows up, he leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife. We are to be fruitful and multiply. And if we Step back here, many years after this was given to Noah, we see that generally this has occurred. There are many more people obviously living today now as man has been fruitful and multiplied. This verse also mentions filling the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and spread out, fill the earth. For Noah's descendants, this didn't mean that They were to just live in total isolation, just immediately separate and go their own ways and just live in isolation. And every time you reproduce, you just have to immediately separate altogether. But I take this to mean that as they would go forth and as time would pass, as they were fulfilling this mandate, they were to continue to spread out. And they were to indeed fill the globe, fill the whole earth. And we will see in chapter 11... We will see explicit rebellion against that part of this commission. As God would have to force the issue at the Tower of of Babel. Again, as we think about today, obviously, people do indeed cover much of the globe. In fact, many point out that this is is a problem. I am of the persuasion, however, that overpopulation is not the terror that we're made to believe it is. And it's not just me. There are many who aren't even Christians who would agree that it's really not the problem many would have us think. I am persuaded by that, but also by this text. This is still in force. We are still to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This hasn't been undone or reversed. This leads to another implication from this verse. Not only does this implicitly uphold marriage and the family, but I would also add that it further implies 
that things like exploration and technological advance are also included in this, are also authorized in this. I mean, if you consider for a moment, if technological advance did not occur, it would be very hard to cover parts of the globe that we currently do live in, including right here. I would submit if we couldn't heat our homes efficiently, life here would be extremely difficult for us, and fewer of us would be able to do it. The land wouldn't be able to sustain as many of us. Certainly you've noticed there's not a lot of firewood available around here. There have been many advances, technological advances, that have helped us be able to fill the earth and multiply. There have been many advances that have helped and benefited mankind in general. We are recipients of much of that work, maybe in small ways contributing to that as well. This is generally what mankind is to do. We benefit from the technological advances that have come as man has lived this out. And it's not that all of this technology has been, uh, has been figured out by godly people. It is mankind in general who does this, and it's right for us to benefit from it. It's a mercy of God to us and to all of our neighbors that we would have some of these advances. This is all appropriate activity for mankind in general to be engaged in. This is the common world of humanity. And so the Noahic covenant calls mankind to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And it implicitly here authorizes the family and various other activities that will help us to accomplish this end. Secondly, the Noahic covenant calls mankind to steward the earth well for the good of man. I've started really already saying this, but I think it's clear in the next couple of verses. So let's read again verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give, gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Again, back in chapter 1, when God told mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it added in chapter 1, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And here, the command to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it is not restated in the same way. This is a a further reminder that this commission that is now given here after sin has entered the world is not precisely the same thing as it was for Adam and for Eve. They cannot simply go forth and take dominion. There are a number of things that are different about these commissions. Among them is just going out and taking dominion. The the earth itself is now cursed. The animal kingdom is now a wild animal kingdom. Nevertheless, it's not totally destroyed. Mankind is still God's viceroys upon the earth and have a measure of dominion this side of the fall. 
but it requires assistance in the form of God restraining the animals. The wild beasts, we're told here, now possess a fear and a dread of mankind, which will help keep them at bay, will help us as we go about our tasks. Obviously, there are times when animals do attack man. I think this is even acknowledged in this text in verse 5, which we'll see in a bit. But on the whole, even those attacks are relatively infrequent, and typically, if the animal is threatened... They do not typically invade mankind. You think about even Noah in the early days of Noah, as soon as they get off the ark and release those animals, if those animals really wanted to, it could have been over pretty quickly. But not so because of God's restraining hand upon these beasts. And so man's dominion over the beasts is now through a fear that God instills upon them. And this is a a mercy God gives, an assistance to man in this sinful world that we live in. Further, it says that God delivers, he says he delivers the creatures into the hands of men. Man does have an authority over the creatures of the earth. There's a number of implications from this. One is that it is right for us to use animals to help us, to our aid, to domesticate animals for various uses, whether it's oxen to plow. Maybe we don't do that so much anymore, but that has been a thing. Oxen to help us plow or horses to ride or whatever it may be. Also, just as plants were given for man to eat in the Garden of Eden, so now man is expressly and explicitly given permission to eat animals as well. They are also given into our hands for this purpose. This is the first time in the Bible that we do see this being explicitly said, that it's okay to eat animals. Uh, some argue that animals were permitted as food prior to this, um, but that it's only explicitly authorized at this point. Others see this as really the, the first place where it was now permitted for man to eat animals. My opinion on that is really just not that strong. I would not be terribly dogmatic about it. Uh, Certainly we see that Abel had flocks. What were the purpose of that? It could have been for wool or other things, uh, and certainly for sacrifices. Maybe they were already eating them. I don't know. I would lean towards the fact that this is the first, or or, or the, the, the understanding that this is where it is actually given permission for man to now eat animals for the first time. But I do want to point to the word every here. Notice with regard to food that every moving thing that lives shall be food. I think this is helpful to note because it reveals that the dietary restrictions that we will see later on in the Mosaic Covenant are not part of God's abiding moral law. They were added and they were added for a time under the Mosaic Covenant But they also come to an end when that covenant comes to an end. And so when Jesus comes and declares all foods to be clean, he's really just restating what we have here in the Noahic covenant. Every moving thing that lives shall be food. Now I would just, 
again, say to that end that that does not mean that every living thing is equally as healthy for us. I don't think this means we we have to eat every living thing. Uh, I think we are enabled to use wisdom. I think that is implied here and make determinations about which creatures we will and, and will not eat and so on. Nevertheless, they are given into our hands to be food. The restriction that is given here with regard to eating animals is found in verse 4, and it is that man is not to eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now this restriction, is this, this particular verse, is understood in a couple of different ways. I think the way it's translated here is just fine, it is good. We're not to eat flesh with its blood in it, which is the blood is... is representative of its life. If something has blood coursing through its veins, we understand that to be living. And as I went into, as went into this week and you look at the passage and you think about things you're, you're going to have to deal with and, and say, and you're starting to formulate the plan, this was not one of those verses that I expected to say a whole lot about. And yet, when I got here, I found some things about it that were fairly perplexing. And I'm going to end up saying more about this than I would have thought I, I, I would. Um, and the reason for this is that, as I've said, this covenant is still in force. Again, we, we, we look at the promises that we'll get to whenever I'm in the pulpit next, I guess. Uh, in, in verses 8 and following, the promise of the rainbow, the, the, the sign that God will never again flood the earth. This is still in effect. This covenant is still, again, it's with all of the descendants of Noah. Be fruitful and multiply is still in force. The authority we have over creatures is still in force. The justice that we will look at in verses 5 and 6 is still in force. So the question then is, what about verse 4? I think whatever we would say about it, it would seem to me that it would still be in force along with everything else that we find here. And yet, most of the commentaries that I read argue that when Christ comes along and makes all foods clean, this passes away. That they, This verse 4 is no longer in effect. So, what's going on here? Well, some take this to mean exactly what we see later in the Mosaic Covenant, that the blood of the creature here is to be poured out on the ground like water. That's what Deuteronomy 12, 23 says. Don't eat the life, the blood, the animal with the blood in it. You pour it out on the ground like water. So when an animal is to be butchered then, it was not to eat the blood or drink the blood, and rather you drain it from the animal and pour it out on the ground. Now that wasn't saying that every single trace amount of blood had to be removed from it. Uh, it's not saying that Noah would have needed some sort of lab to make sure every single trace amount is, is gone. It's just drain the blood first, and then you may proceed to butcher the animal and eat it. And the reasoning here is tied to a certain respect for life. Uh, almost every commentator that I read, no matter how exactly they take this, will say that this stipulation, this restriction here, is in part, at least, to keep man from savagery and from bloodlust and getting too used to blood and, and drinking it and, and, and treating it flippantly. 
And so there's a certain respect and appreciation that is to be had for the fact that this life of a creature that is one of God's creatures is being spilled that I might eat of it and be nourished by it. Later in the Mosaic Covenant, the blood, again, representing the life of the animal, is also not to be eaten. Another reason is given that it is used for making atonement. Life for life is the concept. It is a special thing. Leviticus 17, 11, you can read that there. Again, there's a, 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 an understanding that this is a, a, an animal that's shed its blood, its life in place of me. That was what was being engendered in that, that understanding. But most people who hold this view that this was saying, drain the animal of its blood, pour it out on the ground, don't eat it, don't drink it. Again, as I said, believe that this has been overturned in the new covenant. When Jesus declared all foods clean, which means it's now permissible to use blood in cooking and so on. But again, I think that is a problematic conclusion because the rest of this covenant is still in force. So there are some then who do take the position that we still should not eat blood. And I think for many of us, this simply would not be a problem. Butchering practices around here typically do involve this very thing, draining the blood from the animal. And by the way, I'll just add here, it might be useful, that when you see red meat or steak or something like that, that red juice that's there is not blood. There might be trace amounts of blood, but it's really water combined with a protein. So this is not saying you couldn't eat a steak that had a little bit of pink in it. That's not the issue. It means that that animal would first be drained before you would go on to prepare the meat. So for many of us, for me personally, this is not a difficult thing if, if this is still in effect. However, there are other cultures where there are dishes that involve the use of blood. Blood stews, blood sausage, blood pancakes, and I'm sure there's much more. So this could be saying that those dishes should not be eaten. There's another interpretation of this verse, and that is that this is restricting eating animals while they are alive. That is, while that blood is still in them, while their life is still in them, you should not be eating that animals, which would obviously be a very savage and barbaric type of practice. So the argument goes, what this is saying is that if and when we eat an animal, the animal should be properly killed first and butchered, not torn apart like wolves or lions might eat an animal while it's still actually technically alive. There have been some practices along this lines. I read of one ancient practice where they would try to keep an animal alive and take chunks off of it while it's still alive to try and make that animal live longer. If you can't refrigerate or freeze the meat, then you're going to have to eat the whole animal as soon as you kill it. So they try to keep it alive as long as they can, patch over the wound and come back for more later. It's a Barbaric practice, but it has, it has occurred. Furthermore, we might wonder, who, 
Who, who's going to be tempted to just tear into an animal with his teeth while it's still alive? Again, maybe not you, maybe not us, but we don't know the depths to which man can fall. There are a number of restrictions and commands that are given in Scripture that we might wonder, why is this even stated? Why do we need to be told this? This should simply go without saying. For example, just give one. There is a command that we read in the Mosaic Covenant against bestiality. And I suspect many people would say, what in the world? Why would that ever have to be in there? Why would anyone have to be warned of that? And what that tells us is is just how sinful the condition of man is, that God felt it necessary to include such a command. That while that may not be a thing for one, it can be and has been for another. And so perhaps this is just saying you properly kill this animal before you butcher it and eat it. Do not descend into some sort of animalistic bloodlust where you tear into these creatures. Obviously, those who hold this second view have an easier time saying that this is clearly still in force today. The question of whether blood might be permissible as part of a dish for those who hold this view is not so much the issue. Whatever view one takes, we are to understand that God clearly gives us the permission to eat his creatures. The things that he has made. It is not unethical. We are not robbers when we do this. But we also see here that it is not to be done in a callous manner and with unnecessary cruelty to animals. I think both, there can be errors on both sides here. So the specific matter in these verses relate to man's authorization to eat animals and to plants. But as with the previous point, there are some other implications that come from this. As I said, the authority over the animals in general implies the right to domesticate animals. Whether we are domesticating animals so that they might kill our rodents, which again, I think is also an authorized thing in light of this. You don't have to just sit there while a rat eats your grain. You can, you can kill it. You can domesticate animals that can help you with those things. Whether we're domesticating animals to pull our wagons or our plows or to give us wool and so on, these are valid enterprises for human beings to do. God authorizes this. Furthermore, he authorizes farming, the planting of crops. We're reminded here, just as he has given us the green plants as well. And I would add to this also the other resources that earth possesses for us. That we are authorized, it is right and good for man to use those resources to live and to function and to carry out our mandate. Notice it says, as, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. It is right for us to use trees, to make buildings, and so on. We saw Noah used wood to build his ark. This is still valid. This is still right. I think this, again, also implies that technological advance in these areas is good. and It's part of this to help us with all of this. 
And again, clearly this should be done with respect to God's creation. We do our best to not abuse this. This is his world. It is his creation, his creatures. He gives us authorization to these things, but we want to be responsible with these things. And I would further suggest that this implies that as man spreads out, as man multiplies, as man develops technologies to help with this task, and as one man begins to specialize in farming, another man specializing in animal husbandry, another man specializing in ironwork and so on, then this also authorizes and implies commerce, that there's going to be working together in these things and some measure of trade that will occur, that this is good, this is acceptable. As we settle new areas and live with our neighbors and work together at these things. So we do see that these resources here are for man to use in constructive ways. The Noahic Covenant authorizes this. So if we think about this in light of today and a lot of the things that go on that we are told, the modern environmental movement will use some of this language about responsibility and so on. And yet so much of it is really inverted, has inverted this. That earth is to be left untouched by man as much as humanly possible. We leave the resources where they lie. We don't use them. In many cases, the green movement is really earth worship. You don't have to go far to see that that is the case. Man is the blight upon this earth. And that's that's not what this is saying. But on the other hand, this doesn't mean that we also are happy to just completely exploit everything with no care or responsibility. We understand that indeed there are. We shouldn't be. It's not skeptical to think that a company, if they could save millions of dollars by lying about some bad effect that they are having upon the earth or upon the inhabitants of the land where they are extracting resources, we shouldn't think they would never do that. Of course they might lie to save millions of dollars. So we, we, we want to do it responsibly, and if we have evidence that it's not, we should call people to do it better, to do it to care for the earth, as they extract these resources, we want to do that. We want to minimize other damage that we would cause. But it is good and right to use the resources that are here upon this earth. God has given this to mankind for our good and for our benefit. Thirdly, the Noahic Covenant calls mankind to uphold and practice retributive justice. So having connected blood to the life of a creature, the passage continues in verse 5. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require it, a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In these verses, God establishes a couple of things. First, we see that if a man is murdered, that is, if his lifeblood is spilled by another, then whoever did it is to have their lifeblood spilled. That is true if it is an animal that does it, or if it is another man, if it is another human being. 
And notice in these verses that it is God himself who says, I require a reckoning. He is the one who demands it. This is calling for capital punishment in the case of murder. And I'll just add here, when we, if we were to jump ahead into the Mosaic Covenant, we see this principle of justice being worked out in there, and we see that there is distinction that can be made in this matter. So, for example, there's a difference between cold-bloodedly murdering, like Cain murdered Abel, versus someone who accidentally causes the death of his neighbor. Uh, Both result in a man's blood being spilled, but there's different punishments we see even in the uh, Mosaic Covenant later. So this is, I think, just very stating it very briefly, this principle, and it's assuming that the person is guilty and has actually done this, like a Cain who murdered Abel. Some believe and will argue that capital punishment devalues or demeans life to have such a penalty. But this is actually presenting to us the opposite picture. This is actually something that upholds and points to the value of life. That it is not to be just taken. And if somebody does go ahead and take the life of their brother, the life of their neighbor, then their own life is therefore to be forfeited. This upholds the value of life. It's not cheap. And even if man does not recognize life as precious, and that this is a, a being created in the image of God, then perhaps at the very least this would put man in fear that he would not lash out and take his neighbor's life because then his life is going to be taken. And when we lessen the punishment, it cheapens it all. On this side of the fall, we are not to treat life as cheap or needlessly destroy human beings. Notice also that it says in verse 6 that man is to shed the murderer's blood. By man shall his blood be shed. This penalty is not one that God immediately does himself where the person just drops dead because God just withdraws breath from them. But it's done by God immediately, that is, through other men. And we'll come back to this in a moment. So this establishes clearly the death penalty for murder. Secondly, it establishes the principle of justice that this fallen world is to operate on. Namely, retributive justice. This idea that the penalty, there is to be a penalty for crimes committed, and the penalty is to fit the crime that was committed. That is, it is to be proportionate to the crime that has been committed. If you kill somebody, you spill their life's blood, then your life's blood is to be spilled. Again, if we jump ahead to the civil laws of Israel that would later be rooted in this very type of justice, it was the principle of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You read about that in Leviticus 19.11. The idea there is the punishment shall fit the crime. It'll be proportionate. So justice, according to God, is based on this principle. And this is what man under the Noahic covenant should be upholding. 
And so the specific matter here is dealing with murder, the crime of murder. But it is also in general establishing and communicating to us the principle of just and proportionate retribution as the baseline of justice in a fallen world. We'll just note that our society has very much moved away from this. It's not about punishment for crimes committed. The main focus is on what now? We want to rehabilitate the person. They've done this because something's just not quite right. We want to fix them and then send them back into society. And so people who commit very violent and horrific crimes, including crimes like murder, can just get some help and some medicine and be rehabilitated and sent back out. That's how we view it. And in the end, justice is not served by that. Of course, if someone commits a lesser crime and they pay their penalty, whatever it is, and you know, we give them help that they might be able to come back into society, that, that's another thing. But the idea that a crime deserves a punishment for it is something that is being lost and being argued against and has been for many years in our own country. Just as with the other points, this aspect of the Noahic Covenant also carries with it some further implications. If all of the implications I've already said are true, it's going to be trade and communities forming for mutual advantage, then there must also be a way to address grievances that arise. There will be some structure around this that helps to protect man and enable man to do these things, to live this out, what God calls mankind to. And so I agree with those who say that this authorizes or legitimizes the formation of government, which would include a system of justice of some kind. And this reveals to us that their job, what they ought to do, is to protect man so that he might live out his life being fruitful, multiplying, working the ground, and and all that this would entail. Now, some might think that's perhaps a little bit thin. But I, I want to just take a couple of minutes to briefly try to connect this. Obviously, right away, this wouldn't have looked like modern nation states, nor must it look like modern nation states. But as man spreads out and fulfills the duties described throughout this passage we've been looking at, I think political communities of some kind would necessarily form. And then if you consider, when we get to the New Testament, who is it that we are told, explicitly told, has the authority to do what verse 6 says? Who is it who possesses the power of the sword to do the very thing that is authorized here? We read from 1 Peter 2, but also Romans 13 tells us it is the governing authorities. And that they are appointed by God. We find in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament that the authority of various nations and kings, including pagan nations and pagan kings, these authorities are legitimate authorities. These kings are often unjust, often very brutal, but they nevertheless have a legitimate authority. God used the Assyrians. They were a legitimate authority that God used to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. 
God later used Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to punish the southern kingdom of Judah. And in Jeremiah 29, he tells the exiles to go and to marry, have children, and seek the good of the place you're going, the welfare of the city you're going. For in their welfare, you will find your welfare. That's very, very, sounds a lot like what we find in, in Genesis chapter 9. So where would this come from? This idea that these kings and these nations have a legitimate authority given by God. Well, I think it's implied right here in Genesis chapter 9. That as man spreads out, there will arise various authorities and that that is acceptable and permitted by God here. Authorized even. As we think about the authority of governments, this opens up a whole list of questions about how it is that we relate as Christians to them. And we don't have time to get into all of this now or to start into it too too far. Uh, Maybe we'll circle back to this uh, in in coming weeks here. But I want to leave it there for now. And as we close... I just want to note that none of this that we have looked at here is salvific. This, this covenant that God makes with Noah and his offspring and everyone else and all of creation does not save anyone. It does not result in salvation if someone obeys it. It is a covenant that God established with all of creation But it is a covenant that gives a general commission that we've been looking at in that it restrains sin. It promises that God will withhold his his wrath to a degree. It stabilizes the setting which God would then in which God would then work out his plan of redemption. And when Christ came, he came and declared That into this general creation under the Noahic covenant, that with Christ's coming came the kingdom of God and its arrival. And this is a kingdom that indeed is salvific for all who enter into it. And it is entered into only by the power of the Spirit working in the heart of the man or the woman, the child, regeneration, being born again, As man then believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who enter into this kingdom are forgiven by God. There's the forgiveness of sins. We come out from under the condemnation for our own sins that we have committed. Our own violations of God's law. This kingdom that Jesus said was here now upon his coming. It is here, but it is not yet here in its fullness. It is distinct from the general kingdom of creation, though all of it is ultimately accountable to the Lord. 
This kingdom of creation, this world that we see is being preserved through the Noahic covenant, but it will eventually be destroyed by judgment. And the kingdom of God will be established in its fullness. And I would I believe the Bible's teaching about that is that will occur when the Lord Jesus returns. And so as Christians, then, our ultimate citizenship is indeed in heaven, the Bible says. It's in God's kingdom. But we still live our days in this world under this Noahic covenant as well with our neighbors. And we contribute in that realm as well. And this is what is often been referred to as the doctrine of the two kingdoms. But we know that this earth as we know it is cursed under the covenant of works, Adam's failure. It is destined for destruction. That is on hold now. God promises that in the Noahic covenant. With certain tasks as mankind in general is to perform under that. But it is ultimately going to be judged by God. And of course, we see this Noahic covenant and even what we are told here mankind is to be doing is often rebelled against. Often rulers do not keep this justice. And so we testify to our neighbors of the kingdom of God. We call sinners to repent and believe. And we seek to contribute as Christians, and unashamedly as Christians, we seek to contribute as we have opportunity to our society under the Noahic Covenant as well. We, as, we seek the welfare of the city in which we live. This Noahic covenant, it is not subsumed by the new covenant. It is not swallowed up or done away with. It continues even today. It is what man in general is to be doing. And in some places on the earth, it is done better than others, though nowhere is it done perfectly. And even where it is done reasonably well or comes reasonably close to this, we still find sinners. And it is the gospel that comes with saving power and calls men and women into the kingdom of God, which is here now in part, but will one day be here in fullness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy toward us. We are grateful you send your reign upon the just and the unjust alike. And even in a world where we see rebellion against you all over, we still benefit much from what our neighbors do and accomplish. Father, this is your, your common grace and mercy to mankind, that there would still be anything good in this world though we are sinners. 
Father, I pray that in these days you would give us wisdom. Wisdom to know how to live and interact with our neighbors. That you'd give us courage to speak the truth. Father, we know that man is lost in sin. So I pray that you would help us to have confidence that it is the gospel that is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. Father, we pray that you would draw many out of darkness into your kingdom. And Father, we pray too, as you have called us to pray, we do pray for those who are in authority over us. That you would cause wisdom to abound. That you would stay the hand of wicked men and women. Father, we know that this enables your people to live freely and to do the things that you call us to as your church and in society when our rulers are a terror to wicked conduct and not to good. Father, we pray that you would restrain evil in our day, that you would cause your word to flourish and to be rejoiced in all over. Father, regardless of how you choose to Work these things out in your sovereign will. Help us to trust you in everything. Give us wisdom. Help us to, to live in a way that would honor you. Father, we, we are aware of our neediness for your help. Give us graciousness as we live amongst sinners, people of unclean lips. Father, knowing that if it weren't for your grace toward us in Christ, we would be right there with them, engaging in evil. So, Father, help us. We thank you for your many mercies. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.